This morning's scripture passage is Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 through 6 and 16 through 22. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And on the morning of the third day there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke, because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. And also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this powerful word, and uh, we are grateful for the beauty that is conveyed herein, and we ask that you would remind us again here today that we have been summoned not ultimately to Mount Sinai, but to Mount Zion. We have been summoned into your presence through our great mediator, Jesus. Thank you for your word. And God, we pray that you would encourage us today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So it's pretty clear that this last week we have been incredibly blessed uh, with awesome vistas. Uh, last Saturday, I was looking up um, at the mountains, at the foothills, and a couple of times I actually pulled over to the side of the road uh, to take pictures because we not only had snow blanketing uh, the top of Saddleback Mountain, but also, of course, at lower elevations, there was a dusting of snow like I had never seen in living here 33 years. 
And I know many of you, like me, have been wowed by it, and you know, you say things like, that is just awesome. And when you take pictures and you post them on social media, or you send them to your friends and family, you say what? It doesn't do it justice. These awesome, awe-inspiring vistas. Mountains are made by God, in a sense, <laughs> to make us feel small to put us in our place. As the writer Jane Austen said in Pride and Prejudice, what are men to rocks and mountains? Mountains give us perspective. And they testify to God's transcendence, to his supreme majesty. Psalm 36 says that his righteousness is like the mountains of God. And it's here in Exodus that God calls Moses back to the mountain where he had initially given Moses his call. He calls him back now with the people of God in tow, and they meet God at the base of the mountain. This is a formative event in the life of God's people. Many of you, like me, I'm sure, have, have been formed when you've been up in the mountains. You've been at camps, or you've had spiritual renewal experiences at the mountain. Well, this is the formative events in Israel's history as they meet with God, as he meets with them at the mountain. And so we're going to look today as we consider meeting God at the mountain, we're going to look at the fact that God carries them. God carries them. God places conditions upon them. And then God also cautions them. And so first, God carries them. It's been two months since God rescued the Israelites from Egypt. And here at the base of Mount Sinai in the wilderness, he reaffirms his commitment to them. He renews his promises and rehearses to them their identity as he had called them to meet with him through Moses. And I want you to see that before God gives to them commands, he reassures them who they are, that they belong to him, that they are his people. And so in this sense, grace, we can say, precedes the law. So the commands that God gives are not coming in kind of a cold way, as though they lack context, but they are in the context of a relationship. Now, on Aliso Viejo Parkway, I believe it is, when you drive down here toward the church, uh, there is often a big sign out that gauges your speed limit, <laughs> and it tells you how fast you're going. The um, zone is 50 miles per hour. Sometimes I'm like three miles per hour over, but more often than not, I'm going like 45, and it says, speed up, Grandpa. <laughs> See, when you see these signs, they, they work for a bit or for a moment, but they are coming without a context. They are just bare words. But the commands, the words that God is about to give to Israel through the Ten Commandments, they come in the context of God knowing his people. The laws flow from his relationship with them, friends, and to them. In Exodus 20, he tells them in the preamble to the Ten Commandments, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out 
of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And so again, he's telling them who they are, but the language he uses is so powerful and intimate and beautiful. He says, I brought you out and I bore you up on eagle's wings. Uh, One Jewish writer says that this is the only poetry that you actually find in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. It is poetic imagery. It evokes beautiful memories of God lifting them up and drawing them out of Egypt and bondage and bringing them to himself. And as we think of an eagle flying over the nest of her young, uh, she, can, she flutters her wings and, and her, her uh, birds, her, her young, are encouraged to fly out of the nest. Well, if they fall, Some speculate that the eagles are the only birds that can actually get underneath their young and carry them on their wings. Uh, This rescue and protection from eagles was wonderfully portrayed in uh, J.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit, uh, which I read in junior high. And what a powerful scene it was when at the end, hordes of goblins, these evil creatures, surrounded the heroes and they were outnumbered. And yet when all seemed lost, one of them looked out to the horizon and said, it it said he gave a great cry for he had seen a sight that made his heart leap. Dark shapes, small yet majestic against the distant glow. The eagles, the eagles, he shouted. The eagles are coming. And so let this image of God's redeeming, protective love sink in. He says, I have borne you up on eagles' wings and I have brought you to myself out of the worst traps, out of the worst bondage that would ensnare you and separate you from me. And what is that worse bondage? It is our inward slavery. It is the cultural message that says, and I heard it this week several times, I must be authentic to myself. I must be true to myself. But God says, no, we must be true to Him. And in relationship to Him, our Redeemer, we are most truly ourselves. Last Saturday, I was reminded of this uh, incredible imagery of God carrying us like an eagle carries its young. When I was at a funeral at Hollywood Presbyterian Church where I grew up, it was the uh, memorial service for an old friend of mine uh, who was in the same grade as I was, and I had lost contact with him, but I was up at the funeral with about 100 people or so, and he paid, this man did, my friend, And I hadn't seen him in years, really, and and we've kind of lost touch over the decades. But he uh, paid excellent tribute to his dad. He was was so eloquent in the way he talked about their relationship. But frankly, throughout most of the talk, it it was um, devoid of God. Uh, He talked about their love of cars and their love of sailing together, and that was all fine and good. And yet I was so encouraged that at the very end, uh, with tears in his eyes and passion in his voice, 
Uh, he was standing up in that large cathedral-like church with pipe organs, uh, uh, pipes behind him. And he said that his parents, when he was young, carried him up these steps. And he pointed to the steps and he said, they carried me up these steps to be baptized, to be dedicated to the Lord. And I thought about my own life and I rehearsed the many decades. I too was carried up as though on eagle's wings. I was carried by my parents to be baptized on the same steps that he was baptized. There with my friend, I received my first Bible when I was in elementary school. There on those steps in high school, as I was struggling to figure out Christian faith and and how to navigate being a follower of Christ in this very difficult world. On those steps during an evening service, the Lord met me and he carried me. And then later in college, as I was in that church, I thought of the fact that the Lord carried me on his wings as I was considering my call to ministry. And there I had that call confirmed. And so, dear friends, no, no matter where you are in life and what you're going through, I want you to remember that the Lord remembers you. Let the poetic words evoke that God is committed to you. And he has lifted you up on eagle's wings, bringing you out of bondage to yourself and to this world and to the devil. And he has brought you to himself on eagle's wings. He carries you. He carried them, he carries us, but God also places conditions on them. You see, he brought them to this place at the foot of the mountain, but then we're told quickly that he, he places expectations on Israel. Verse 5, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now again, God had already established his relationship with them. They didn't become God's people by obeying, but rather they obeyed because God had claimed them as his people. And so by obeying his voice, God is saying, they can fulfill the role that he has planned for them to go out into the world and to serve him. Well, what ends up happening is Israel's history is so much like ours. You see, they never quite perfectly fulfilled their, their covenant obligations. Certainly they didn't keep the Ten Commandments as they were called to do. They so often fell far short of full obedience. And yet as they struggled and failed to keep God's law, it's as if they were longing for grace. They were looking forward to what God might do. It was as if they were waiting for Jesus Christ, the book of Hebrews says, who was the mediator of a new covenant since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So the Israelites, Hebrew says, were looking for the mediator who would deal with their failures to keep 
the covenant. And you see, friends, Christ has offered his full, full obedience on our behalf to God. And he took the penalty that we deserve for breaking covenant. Pastor Phil Riken has said, God's covenant is unconditional for us only because Christ has kept its conditions. You see, because Jesus met the terms of God's covenant, we then can embrace our identity that God gives to us to carry out his mission in this world. And so then when we go to the New Testament, 1 Peter 2.9 takes the identifying words of Exodus 19, and Peter applies it to us who are in Christ. Notice the echoes of um, Exodus 19. It's quoting it. Peter says, but you in Christ are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people set apart, in other words, a people for God's own possession. Why? So that we might just revel in that? No, so that we might declare the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his light. You see, friends, by the grace and the love of our God, we can know that he loves us more deeply than we would ever dare hope or imagine. And he says to us, you belong to me. You have immense value. You are my treasured possession. You are my royal people. Now, what an identity that is. And so he sets us apart to live distinctively, not, not according to my truth, as I'm sometimes tempted to do. It's not just a cultural thing. It's, it's a thing about us, right? We want to live according to our feelings and our reality. But no, he says, you belong to me to live according to my truth. Now, friends, as we think about this identity, this royal identity, that we are a holy nation, sometimes, you know, we just don't feel adequate. We, we don't feel... Prized. We don't feel all that precious. You know, we have work challenges that weigh us down. We're exhausted, perhaps, from watching small children, um, children or grandchildren, perhaps. Or we never quite succeed in business as we had envisioned. And so life wears us down. Or we struggle with medical challenges or loneliness. But see, through those struggles and insecurities, this passage, Exodus 19, fulfilled in 1 Peter, it is telling us that we are to know that God has given us a royal identity. We are a kingdom of priests, that is, servants of God. Friends, we are a holy nation, a set-apart people for himself. Now again, what does this look like? Well, this is right before the giving of the Ten Commandments. And we can think a bit about those commandments and what it means to be a holy nation. You shall have no other gods before me. Are we striving not to trust and put our ultimate love toward the things, the false gods of this world? Or are we learning to say God is our God? 
Friends, in this really angry um, and envious culture, are we putting to death our anger, our, our envy, our lust? Are we honoring our parents and those in authority? You see, as we live in this distinctive way, not being holier than thou, certainly not, but living under the holy identity that we have in Christ, who fulfilled the conditions of the covenant for us, as we do this, Peter says, people will see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We do that imperfectly, but we do that in the perfection of Christ. And so God places conditions on them, but he also cautions them. We're told that on the morning of the third day, God descended upon the mountain. And there, there was a thick cloud on the mountain with shots of lightning and peals of thunder and loud trumpet blasts so that the whole mountain shook Violently. Now this is basically what? Volcanic, right? Again, one ancient rabbi put it this way, and I think this is interesting. God is showing here that he's independent of his creation. And that even nature trembles. Trembles before him. And so Moses was to go up onto the top of the mountain where God surrounded that top with with a, a cloud and it was engulfed in fire and smoke. It was quite a sight. But God then tells Moses to go down and to meet with the people at the base of the mountain. So they took their, their positions there. And what did God say? He instructed Moses uh, to gather the people around, but also to put a perimeter around the base of the mountain, lest the people break through and die. Now, it's so interesting here that Moses keeps going up and the people stay, as it were, toward um, at the barrier. It, it seems that what is happening here is it's suggesting the later worship of Israel where they would come into the temple and there were the outer courts, there was... Uh, the holy places, or were the holy places, and then the inner sanctum was the holy of holies. And so here the people are approaching God, but only through their mediator Moses. But here's the big issue. How can they approach him? Because God said, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, or cleanse themselves, set themselves apart, lest what? The Lord break out against them. And he also says that about the people. You see, there's no way to come uh, to the Lord on our own uh, abilities, our own merits. We have to be cleansed. But the question is, how can we get clean? You see, the people approach God through Moses, their mediator, and he takes them, as it were, up the mountain. Yet he too is imperfect as the rest of Exodus shows. Moses too, like the other priests, must be cleansed. And so the question becomes, how can they enter into the Holy of Holies? How can they go up to the top of the mountain? Well, much, much later in history, 
Friends, the Lord descended, as it were, not in fire, not with thunder and smoke, but he descended in his Son. And Jesus, our perfect mediator, removes our sins. He cleanses us. He consecrates us as the perfect priest who brings us into the presence of God, into the holy of holies. Hebrews 9 says, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So how do we go up the mountain, as it were? Well, God has come down to meet us. And I want you to notice that there are no barriers anymore. There are no perimeters any longer. Why? For the anger of God broke out against the sinless one so that sinners, so that you and I might approach God. As we will sing during communion, Christ has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. You see, when, when Moses met God and God descended, there were, again, trumpets blasting louder and louder. But we will only hear those trumpets when the crucified and risen Christ returns in glory for his people. And so again, the book of Hebrews says, to us who trust in Christ, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. You see, that's the scene here in Exodus 19. It then says, but instead you have come to Mount Zion. It's not a mountain in the Middle East. It is referring to heaven. You have come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. You have come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And you have come to Jesus, Hebrew says, the mediator of a new covenant. And you have come finally to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You see, when Abel was killed by his brother Cain in Genesis, his blood cried out for vengeance. And friends, the blood of Jesus for us cries out for mercy. Jesus fulfilled the law on our behalf and therefore he, he bears you up on eagle's wings and he, he brings you to himself so that you and I might live in grateful service to God as royal priests, as a holy nation. Now, this doesn't mean that caution completely goes away. There, there is still, in a sense, caution if we think of it as being serious. Why? Because our God, Hebrews says, is a consuming fire. Our daughter Paige uh, just returned from safari in South Africa with some friends. And on the shared album, she put a lot of pictures there. And 
One of those was uh, on a night safari. There was a giant male lion, not very far from her van or whatever it is <laughs> they're in when they look at lions. And she got a great snap of this, again, king of the beasts. And she had good lighting. They had it all lit up. And this lion was just glorious and regal and fierce looking. Uh, and our three-year-old granddaughter, um, our son and daughter-in-law showed her the picture, and she said, is, is Auntie Paige going to pet it? <laughs> and she said, I think it's a nice lion. <laughs> and, of course, I thought, we are getting this young lady ready for C.S. Lewis, <laughs> the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. You see, there... The, one of the characters, Susan, talks to Mr. Beaver, and Mr. Beaver tells Susan that Aslan, the ruler of Narnia, is a lion. You see, Susan is, is totally surprised because she thought Aslan uh, was a man. And she then tells uh, Mr. Beaver, um, I shall quite, um, sh shall I feel nervous about meeting a lion? Shall I be nervous? Is he quite safe? To which Mr. Beaver says to Susan, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you, he is good. And what Exodus 19 is telling us is that our God who isn't safe Frankly, he's not nice, but he's kind. He is good. He is merciful, friends, and he invites you to come into his presence. He gives you privileged access. So as you are here, perhaps struggling today with yourself, with the world, with the weariness of life, know that God has met you at the Mount of Crucifixion where Jesus the mediator died for you so that you might live and be brought in, brought up on eagle's wings, as it were. He has brought you to Mount Zion. And dear friends, he calls you in. He carries you up so that he might send you out in service to him as a royal priesthood and a holy nation. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these poetic words that you have lifted us up on eagle's wings. You have brought us through our bondage um, to self, brought us out of that, and our desire to live according to our own truth, our own reality, to always be authentic to ourselves. But God, you, you have rescued us. And shown us that to be our true selves is to relate truly to you. We are so grateful that Jesus fulfilled the conditions of the covenant so that we might be your sons and daughters. That we might be a royal priesthood sent out into this world as a holy nation to live humbly and graciously and gratefully for you and before the watching world. 
God, I pray that we would take you very seriously, that we would know that you are a consuming fire, but we thank you that you descended not in smoke and lightning and thunder when Jesus came, but you descended in his humility, his grace, his mercy. We know that when Jesus comes back, there will be trumpets, but now this is the time to tell the world, to show the world that Christ is Redeemer, that the judge is the Savior who took our judgment. And I pray, God, that you would help us to live out this royal identity. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.